There's lots of talk these days about walls, isn't there? Here's a picture. Uh, my family was down in El Paso earlier this spring, and we went down to the wall. And there's my kids, and they're talking to some kids on the other side of the wall. And there's a wall, right? There's lots of talk about walls these days. Uh, if you ever turn on AM radio and you just kind of flip from station to station, it just seems like we're talking about walls, right? There's all kinds of walls. And the heart of the issue about walls, and there's lots of things and we're not really going to talk about it today, but the heart of the issue about walls is when you draw a circle around something, should there be walls around it? Should there be walls to protect the circle that you've drawn around? Should a circle have a boundary or not? Right? In ancient times, there were cities, right? Like this one. Anyone know what the city is? Probably don't. It's Dubrovnik in Croatia. I love, I've been to the city. It's really cool. But in ancient times, cities had walls. And cities were places of commerce. They were places of trade. And they were places that offered safety and security. A place to nurture a population inside those walls. And a city without walls was... Not going to be a city for very long, right? Because the world was a a tough place and lots of people from outside those walls wanted to come in and take away that safety and security. Now, cities had walls, but cities also had something in those walls, which were gates. Right? They had gates, and the gate was a way that you could have commerce. You could have interaction with the world around you. People could come in and go out through the gates. And so if you had a city, and it had walls, and it had no gates, it wasn't going to be a city for long either, right? The population would eventually starve and kind of go crazy or whatever was going to go on there, right? So the point of walls is to create boundaries of safety, security, and protection so that good will grow and flourish and be nurtured. And then the point of gates is to provide controlled access points where those inside can interact safely and freely and rightly with the world around them. Okay, like I said, we're not going to talk about immigration or anything today. Instead, there's a parallel, and the parallel is to the family. We talk about the family. See, we have a culture where the family is also kind of a hot-button topic, isn't it? Right? The culture is kind of calling, it's screaming for there to be no walls geographically. It's also calling for there to be no walls around families. And examples of this would be too numerous to count. I didn't really want to go into the examples of why I think we all would sort of agree, even though it's a politically charged sort of topic, we all would understand that our culture is saying we don't have to break down walls around families. I've been doing this for some time, and I want to say, how is that working out? How is it working out to see walls torn down around families? And I've got some statistics for you today. Based on some studies, I did a little bit of research on this. There's approximately 70-ish million adolescents in the United States. In a culture that says, we don't want to have walls around families. We want people to be kids, to be free, to do whatever they want to do. Here's what we get. 10 to 20%, according to whichever study you look at, of adolescents are alcoholics. That's a lot. 1 in 10, 2 in 10, somewhere in that. That is a lot for teenagers, adolescents. More than 3 million U.S. adolescents have had at least one depressive episode. And even one is too many. The average age of the first exposure to pornography among adolescents in the United States is 11. It's estimated that 60% of adolescents seek out pornography at least monthly, if not more frequently than that. 
In 1960, 1% of kids experienced parental divorce. Today, more than 50% do. Suicide is the number two leading cause of death among adolescents. That one terrifies me. Unless we think that things are better inside the Christian world than they're not, we also understand that 90% of those who would call themselves Christian youth will leave the faith in adulthood. So how is it going, tearing down these walls around the families? And when I think about that, I think about what does God want? What do you think God wants? What does God want for families? Does he want this stuff? God doesn't want this stuff. God wants our good. He wants what's best for us. He wants good in our families. He wants good for our kids as they're growing up. And so when we look to the Bible, thankfully God hasn't just left us here to figure it out on our own. He's given us the Bible. He said, here's my instruction manual. That's what we've been talking about in this series. And he offers us in the Bible ways to create safety and protection for our kids while also equipping them to interact rightly with the world around them. I think God really wants us to build walls and gates around our families. I think that's what God wants for us. So we can see that when we do that, because the culture is saying, tear down the walls, tear down the walls, tear down the walls, and God's saying, no, have walls, have gates. You can see that if we're going to do what God says, we're going to be running against our culture, aren't we? We're going to have to go against them. And so parents who want to pursue God's best are going to have to be countercultural parents. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and say, why should we be listening to this message? Now, some of you are parents, and you're going, okay, this is good. This is my wheelhouse. This is my world. I got kids at home. I need constant reminders. I need encouragement. I want to hold tightly to God's word and do this. You may be there, and some of you may be going, well, I'm not a parent. Some of you may be single. You don't have kids yet. Some of you are married and you don't have kids. Some of you are married and your kids are grown up and you're like, I'm done kind of with the parenting thing, at least when they're little. And I know parenting adult kids is a different thing. But regardless of who you are, if you're part of the spiritual family or you're connected to what we're doing here, you have to understand that there are other parents here who do have kids and their family and we want to be connected together as a family and I think the principles that we're going to see from Proverbs are going to apply to all of us regardless of whether we're parents or not whether we're raising a family or not when you know God's principles you can live them out in your own life and you can help others who are trying to live those out and understand where they are and frankly I would say how, how we operate as parents in our church is at the core of who we are as a church So, that being said, today we're going to look at Proverbs. And why are we going to look at Proverbs? Because in Proverbs, there's over a hundred verses about parenting. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about money? We said there's over a hundred verses about money. We were like, it's about 20%. So about 20% of the verses in Proverbs are about money. Another 20% are about parenting. So they go, okay, don't worry, we're not going to go through all 100 of them today. But we want to look at those. And if you want God's best, and you want to go against the culture and say, I'm going to do what God says is best, not what the culture says. I want to be countercultural. And we want to do that because our culture, as we see, is producing bad fruit in kids at an alarming, disturbing rate. We want to be countercultural parents. So today, I'm going to give you seven principles from Proverbs for how we can be countercultural parents. The first one there you see on the screen, countercultural parents humbly enjoy the blessing of godly children. And so I'm just going to go through some verses here to start. First there, Proverbs 17, to have a fool for a child brings grief. There is no joy for the parent of a godless fool. 
A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the mother who bore him. A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, when we look at this and we think about this principle, we've got to be really clear that every single person is responsible for their own spiritual choices. Right? A parent is not responsible for their kids' spiritual choices. Kids are the same. It's been said before that God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. Right? We aren't just sort of grandfathered into the faith. So every single person, as we grow up, just in the same way as your parents, adults, your parents are not responsible for your spiritual choices. You parents are not responsible for your kids' ultimate spiritual choices. But I'm also confident that God's word is right. When we impart God's word and godliness to our kids, they are at least more likely to be godly. When we build God-centered homes, we are creating places of protection. See, the world isn't going to create those places. It's not. We saw those statistics. The world isn't creating those places. We as parents are the only ones who can really create those places. And when we create those places, we're creating a place where our kids can make informed choices and they can make their own spiritual choices. They're not going to make informed choices when they're not surrounded and protected. And these verses tell us that when our kids choose godliness as adults, it blesses us. It blesses us. I think about myself. I have six kids. And most of you, some of you don't know me, you know, those of you who do, you know I'm an architect, I'm a pastor, I have a lot of things going on, i got a lot of goals, a lot of exciting things that happen in my life, and yet I think about getting another 20, 30 years down the road, and you go, well, if your choices, you could either have children who are making godly choices, or you can have designed some really cool stuff, or your church could grow really big, or something like that, I'd be like, I'd take the kids over the other stuff. I think it's the most important thing. It's my goal. My goal in the end, too, is to just be able to say, Lord, by your grace, by your grace, I made a gospel-centered home for these kids. That would be my goal, and that's my hope. And I go, wow, I hope I can do that, and I hope to humbly enjoy the blessing of godly children. You know, it's been said that parenting, parenting is hard work. It's either hard work now or it's hard work later. And that's true of any sacrifice. That's where it would probably tie to all of us. Any sort of sacrifice you want to make, you can sacrifice now or you can sacrifice later. This is true for raising kids. It's true in your health. It's true in your work. It's true with your finances. The principle here is the first principle that we're going to talk about today, this humbly enjoy, because I think it's important for us to lead that, hey, as parents, we are aiming for something good. We are aiming for something good in humility. In humility, Lord, if you will, Lord, before you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust you in this. Second principle, countercultural parents constantly teach God's ways to their children. Again, some verses here from Proverbs, starting there in Proverbs 1, verse 8. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, except my words, that the years of your life may be many. 
My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So we can see even the author of Proverbs there is offering it as instruction to his kids. He's teaching his God's ways to his children, so there's a model there for us. And so I think about our culture, and I go, wow, education is highly valued, isn't it? Right? It's August, and we're all going, oh, it's back to school season, right? Oh, education is highly valued, and we can see that college attendance is way up. So is the cost of college. But college attendance is way up right now because education is so highly valued. But what is this? what are these verses telling us? God is saying to parents, it's your job to teach kids what? Godliness. Godly ways. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, what is that? What does it mean to teach godliness? Well, I think it's a couple things. The first thing in teaching God's ways means we're teaching our kids spiritual disciplines. We try to boil down the spiritual disciplines. There's, there could be a number of these, but we think about five. One would be reading the Bible. There's a discipline to reading the Bible. Like Dave was talking about this morning, we come together and read the Word, and we go, oh, I want to read the Word. It's God's words of life for me. Another one is prayer. Are we praying? It's a discipline to praying and talking to God and sharing your heart with Him. Another is spiritual fellowship, being together in a family like we have here and like we have in our gospel groups. Are you giving? Are you giving sacrificially of your time, of your treasure, of your resources, of your energy? Are you serving? Are you serving faithfully and with faith? We want to instruct our kids in these, but can you instruct your kids in these if you don't have these habits yourself? It's hard to do that. If you don't have these habits, well, guess what? I and Brad and others, gospel group leaders, we'd love to help you develop these habits in your life. And if you do have these habits, do your kids see you? Do they see you? Do they see you reading the Bible? Do they hear you praying? Do they see you connected to church? Second thing, in addition to spiritual disciplines, would be what we call character disciplines. Things like hard work. You have a chance with your kids to teach them hard work. You don't need to protect them from hard work. You need to let them engage in hard work. So that's how they're going to learn to be hard workers. Conflict resolution is another. Are you working with your kids so they can resolve conflict with you? And if they have siblings, conflict with each other. And if they have conflicts with people outside your home, are you helping them work through those? What about time management? That's a character discipline. We all have to manage our time. Are you teaching your kids? Are you teaching them to manage their time? Are you giving them opportunities to manage their time? What about building friendships? That's a character discipline. How do I build friendships? If you have kids and multiple kids, it's with their siblings first. It's also within the church family and in other circles as well. So we got spiritual disciplines and we got character disciplines. And we say there, I didn't just say they teach God's ways, they constantly teach God's ways. Why constantly? Why do we need to constantly teach? Well, what is the world doing? The world is constantly teaching them to run away from God. It's constantly teaching that. Did you know the average dad spends seven minutes a day talking to his kid? Seven minutes a day. That doesn't sound like constantly to me. It doesn't sound like it to you. It doesn't to me. I don't think it qualifies. 
We need to teach constantly. We've got to come against the world that is constantly giving them anti-God messages. Another reason we should teach constantly is because each one of us is sinful from birth. The world has this idea, and you've probably heard this, it says, oh, kids are born good, and you parents, you're what ruined them. It's false. The Bible tells us it's not. The Bible tells us that kids, every single person is born sinful. And you, as a parent, are what guide them on the path towards godliness. And I believe the Bible is true. And I see evidence in my own life. I see evidence in my kids' life. I see evidence in everyone else's life that we're born sinful. That's where we are. So why do we need to teach constantly? Because we're constantly fighting that battle against the sinful nature. One way we can constantly teach takes us to the third principle, which is that countercultural parents courageously say no. Such a short word, but so important. Proverbs thirteen twenty: Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. See, this is another place the culture is going to come in and say, hey, parent, you ruin your kids when you say no to them. You shouldn't say no. You should let them have what they want. But what is saying no? What does that effectively do? It's creating a boundary. It's creating a boundary. And that takes us back to our example of the city. Saying no is constructing a wall of protection. A wall of protection. What happens to somebody? You all probably know some people in your life. When somebody has no boundaries in their life. It means they have no what? They have no self-control. They have no boundaries. Well, what does Proverbs say, twenty-five, twenty-eight? A man without self-control is like what? A city broken into and left without walls. Parents, we have to impart the good of the no. There's good in saying no. We have to impart that to our kids. It takes courage, and it takes courage, and it takes courage because our flesh just wants to give in, right? I could speak to that of myself. You know, as I said, we got six kids. Our little girl, you guys see her running around here. She's three, and uh, she doesn't like to take no for an answer. Can I have a cookie? Well, sometimes, you know, she's the sixth kid, and we kind of get tired, and we got lots of things going on, and we try silence. She doesn't take silence for an answer either. <laughs> she doesn't interpret silence as, no, it's, oh, can I have a cookie? Can I have a cookie? I want a cookie. Dad, you're going to give me a cookie, right? Yeah, and it goes on and on, and I, part of me in my flesh just goes, oh, just give her the cookie so she'll be quiet. <laughs> That's what we want to do, but we have to fight this battle. We need to fight this battle because there's good when we say no. I want my daughter, I want all of my kids to have self-control because self-control is protection. When they have that, our kids can become a secure city that interacts rightly with the world. And so this leads us to the fourth point this morning, which is that countercultural parents lovingly provide discipline to their children. I'm going to go through a number of verses here. I'll just read these again. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You delight in your kid, you provide discipline to them. Proverbs 19.18 Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. You put him to death, how? By not disciplining him. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, hell. The rod and reproof give wisdom. 
But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And these verses are all talking about discipline. Generally speaking, they are talking about it. But specifically, some of these are talking about what we call corporal punishment. Or in some circles, you call it spanking. And the first thing we need to understand, and we go, oh gosh, you said that word. The first thing we got to understand is there are many forms of godly discipline. There are, and these verses are talking about those forms. And corporal punishment is one form. And it is one tool. If a parent has a toolbox of how to raise and discipline their kids, it is one tool that goes in that toolbox. Now, I think it's probably a really important tool, kind of like a hammer. you got a hammer. You use it for a lot of things. It's an important tool. You don't want to go without it, but it's a hammer. It's a tool. It's just one. But we got to learn to use it the right way. You can use a hammer a lot of wrong ways and cause a lot of problems. And now I get it because you might be going, oh no, he's talking about this. And the culture screams about this issue. I get it. And you yourself, like I said, you might be resistant to this. And maybe you get upset when I mention this and I bring up these verses. And please understand, I'm not trying to push your buttons. And I'm not trying to push an agenda. I think it's just really important for us to say, what does the scripture say? What does it say? Is it God's best? If I believe it's God's best, I want to do what it says. And the concern that probably many of you might have or that the culture has is they go, oh, corporal punishment, that's child abuse. And I think that's a very legitimate concern to have. I think it really is. And sometimes people do have that and they really are concerned about that and sometimes people will just say that they have some other thing that's going on and they just say that and they don't really believe that. But guess what? What do you think the Bible says about child abuse? It condemns child abuse in the strongest terms possible. So we can't have both things in the Bible. We can't say, oh, yeah, abuse your child, but don't abuse it. It can't be both. So when it says discipline your kid, it must not mean abuse your child. It's different stuff. So when it's carried out in God's design, not only these verses tell us that discipline is not only not child abuse, it's a blessing to your kids. And it's a blessing to you. And again, we have to understand then how to practice discipline God's way. And so I'm not going to give the message today about all of that. There's a whole other message there and we don't need to go into all the practicals of how we could do that and whatever. But I got a couple key points I think are important for us all to just kind of keep in mind here. Lovingly administered physical discipline done God's way creates immediate consequence for bad actions which might not have an immediate natural bad consequence. You know, not everything in life is like the electrical dog fence, you know, that zaps the collar when the dog crosses it, right? When your kid punches their sibling, there may not be an immediate bad consequence for what is really a bad action. And it's our job as parents to introduce consequence, to train and create boundaries and self-control and walls and gates around our kids. Another point is that lovingly administered physical discipline increases love, confidence, and stability for a child. Because those boundaries become places where they can live and love and grow and be confident. And lastly, parents, I would say this. If you don't provide any kind of discipline to your kids when they're little, guess what? 
They're eventually going to receive discipline from somewhere because society only functions with discipline and boundaries and rules. And so if they don't receive it from you, they might get it from school, they might get it from work, they might get it from the police. And we don't want that. And so as our church here, our church, our goal is not to hammer on this and push buttons, but our goal is to help each one of you who are parents figure out, how do I do this? God says this is the best. How do I do it? How do I do it lovingly? How do I do it God's way? And we'll help you do that. I'll, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Brad would be glad to talk to you about it. Your gospel group leaders, other parents here would be glad to talk to you about it and help you with that. And all of that leads to the fifth point, which is that countercultural parents relentlessly pursue godly counsel. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. See, I think when it comes to parenting, literally everyone has thoughts on parenting. Literally everyone. Probably every single person here, even the kids, probably have thoughts on parenting. I remember my wife relaying a story to me from a number of years ago when we just had a couple little kids and she was standing having a conversation with another mom who'd raised seven kids. And this single gal came up who was, I think, studying at the university and taking some family study courses. And somehow this conversation turned into something about parenting. And this single gal started lecturing my wife with two little kids and this other woman who'd raised seven kids about how to have proper parenting. (laughs) Because everybody has ideas. Everybody's got those ideas. And so you as a parent have to decide, who will I listen to? Who am I going to listen to? So Christine and I, when we had kids and we were thinking about this, who are we going to listen to? We decided we were going to be very selective. Be very selective in the counsel that we listen to. And the first thing we said was we're not going to listen to non-godly advice on parenting. Now, there might be stuff out there that's from outside the Christian realm that we go, oh, there's some value to it. But if it takes God out of the picture, it takes God's best out of the picture. And I go, well, I don't think I need it. Because everything it says is probably suspect. If it says the most important thing, which is godliness, is taken out of it, then I don't need it. But then I'm also going to filter Christian Christian counsel, Christian advice, because there's lots of that. There's lots of that going on. And how do we filter it? Well, I go, we just decided, well, if we're going to take godly counsel from someone, we need to see the fruit of their life. We need to see their children. Do we see good fruit in their little kids? Do we see good fruit in their teens? Do we see good fruit in their adult kids? And most importantly, is what they have to offer, how does it align with the scripture? Is it lined up with these verses? And so our family, we sought counsel from a number of godly parents around us. I, I think of Rick and Neva Whitney who helped start this church, pastor this church about 15 years ago and they were here as we were getting started with kids and we sought their counsel on a lot of things. Some of you remember Rich and Morgan Thatcher. Rich was the pastor, next pastor here and he's since gone on to plant a church in Parker and we sought a lot of counsel from them. Some of you know Steve and Kathleen Nelson. They're past, he's a pastor down in El Paso and they've raised eight kids and they've got lots of godly advice and then there's a number of you sitting right out here to day and we've whether you've known it or not we've sought your counsel and looked at your lives and seen how we could do this and all of those people and all of you would say first I'm no expert on parenting I don't understand it all I say that about myself too and all of us would say we're sinners and our kids are sinners and our kids don't always make great choices and neither do we but that's not the point I'm not saying, oh, pursue perfect counsel. 
pursue perfect people because they don't exist. And I would say this, when we've sought godly counsel from humble sinners who are before God and say, we're just doing this and this is what the scripture says and this is what we're going with, we've seen a lot of joy, a lot of peace, a lot of patience. We've gained those things from listening to counsel. And this is one of those reasons for all of us, whether we're parents or not, why being connected to God's family, to being connected to the church, why that is so important. Because we can help each other on the journey. Amen. The sixth point, the sixth principle for countercultural parents is that they faithfully fill their homes with love, not possessions or experiences. I love these verses in Proverbs 15. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. And as if that wasn't enough, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now, we look at this, I'm not saying, oh yeah, shirk your responsibility to provide. I'm not saying that. We've got to provide for our families. I understand. I have to also. We're all providing. But I would say provide, but don't obsess. I think that's what these verses are saying. And will we believe these? I think what Proverbs is saying here is that love and relationship and godliness is better than stuff or experiences. The world tells us you need more stuff. You need more experiences. And it's easy for us to believe the lie that our kids need more. We, my wife and I were recently talking to a friend, another family in our homeschool community who has six kids. And uh, she was telling us, oh yeah, my oldest son, when he was a young and he was a little kid, we just had this mindset of, oh, we got to get him into this. We got to get him into soccer. We got to get him into music. We got to get him into theater. We got to get him into all these things. And they were running around trying to get him into all this stuff and have all of these experiences. And at some point, this little boy looked up at mom and said, mom, I just want to be home with you. She said, that changed their perspective. And I thought, wow, what a great story. Even little kids understand. Love is better than possessions or experiences. I think it's hard. It's a hard thing to do because, again, our world wants to say, oh, go do this and go do this and go this. And I think it's good. Don't get me wrong. I think it's good for our kids to do stuff. My kids, they all do stuff. They all have activities. They have possessions. You know, we're not living in a cave or under a bridge or something. They have stuff. But we want to have a house full of love. We want to have a home where there's a high level of love. And so I got three diagnostic questions for you to measure the love level in your house, parents. First one is this. Are my kids' activities and possessions drawing us together as a family or pulling us away from each other? We're just running around and trying to fill ourselves up with stuff and giving them devices and things that's pushing people away? Or is the stuff we're doing pulling us together? And we all fight that. I fight that in my own family. I go, well, how do we limit what people are doing and how they're doing it and what's the purpose of it? And I think of my son Josiah, who's back there, and he loves to do theater, and he's gotten into it, and he's going to do it again this fall. And there's this opportunity, and he said, hey, you know what? This is kind of a family show. Why don't you come do it with me? And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go do theater with my son this fall. You guys can all come to the Christmas place. Stay tuned to that. I'll tell you more about it. But it's an activity I can do with him. It's an activity I can do with him. We can do things together. A couple of my sons are doing flag football. Well, we can go together as a family. We can go together and be together and do those things. The second question we can ask is, are my kids in activities because it builds God's kingdom? Or because then I won't need to engage with them? Do we just see these activities as a chance for just free babysitting so I don't need to engage with my kids? 
Are we saying, hey, I really see a purpose. I really see a kingdom purpose. We talked about two weeks ago. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek it first. It could be in activities for God's kingdom. Are you doing that? Are you just trying to get free babysitting out of it? Third question we can ask is, how many meals a week are we eating together? And how many of those are spent in meaningful conversation? Right? We do the math. If you eat meals three times a day, how many meals are there in a week? Twenty-one. Alright? If you work, you have a job, and you're gone for lunch, well, then you only have 16. Right? You work five days a week, you're down to 16 meals. Okay, well, if you get up early and you miss breakfast with your family, now you're down to 11 meals. Well, if you work late, so you miss breakfast and lunch and dinner every weekday, now you're down to six meals. Okay, I'm not going to speak judgment upon how many meals you have, your work schedule, or your life, because everybody's got those things. But are you taking those opportunities as they shrink down? Those are an opportunity where you can all sit together, and you can have love, and you can have meaningful conversation to impart godliness to kids. Are you taking those golden opportunities to build love or not? Our homes won't fill with love if we aren't intentional in taking those opportunities. So that's six of the seven principles for being countercultural parents, but the seventh one is the most important one. And that's this that countercultural parents confidently build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Proverbs four twenty six in the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs twenty verse seven the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. And now a verse not from Proverbs, 1 Corinthians 3.11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the most important point this morning. We cannot and should not make parenting be a set of rules to follow. I gave all these principles. It's not a set of rules. That's why I didn't say seven rules, seven formulas. It's seven principles principles. We cannot make parenting a set of do's and don'ts, a list of check boxes where we can compare ourselves against other people. And because when we do that, we're taking our kids and we're showing our kids that life is all about what you do and what you don't do and whether what you do or don't do is what gets you to go closer to God and which gets God to love you more or not. And that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. If we make parenting a set of rules to follow, guess what? We will fail. Anytime we make something a set of rules, we will fail because we're sinners. Every single one of us. And when we make a set of rules and we fail at a set of rules, we just want to do what? Throw up our hands and give up. And our kids and our families become cities without walls. Instead, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves in our parenting. What is that gospel? Well, I'll just give it to you here. It's that God loved me so much. He loved me so much. He let Jesus Christ take the penalty for my sins. Now, when God looks at me, God's around me and he looks at me, what does he see? 
He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees that perfect righteousness. I am perfect because of Christ in me. That's what God sees and that's my standing for him. And that's his love for me. So nothing I can do and nothing I cannot do changes his love for me or my standing for him. If I go to all of these principles and I carry every single one out perfectly, God still loves me at the maximum level. If I go to these principles and I just avoid them and do all of the opposite thing, God still loves me at the maximum level. That's the gospel. So you go, great, if God loves me at the maximum level, now I can make choices. I can make choices in freedom, in my family, in my world, to serve, to love, to obey. Why? Because I know that those things are going to bring about good in my life and good in the lives of people around me. God loves me at the maximum level if I do everything right, and he loves me at the maximum level if I do everything wrong. And so when we approach our parenting as a church, we approach anything as a church, we've got to build confidently upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is the most important point. Again, that's the foundation of godly parenting and it's the foundation of everything we do. If we've received the free gift of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, then countercultural parenting and anything that we do can flow from the freedom he's given us. And that's what I'm going to share this morning. I'll pray and we'll close the time. Now, thanks God for your word. Thanks for the truth. But thank you above all for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in my place that if I receive the free gift of salvation, you see Christ when you look at me and you love me at the maximum level. God, thank you that I don't have to beat myself up. Lord, thank you that each person who's here, wherever they're at, as they engage with parenting or their situations or being parented or whatever, they don't have to beat themselves up. Because you love us at the maximum level. And so God, my prayer for myself and for our church is that we would accept the freedom you've given us in the gospel, the freedom to make good choices, to parent, to look at your word and say, "Ah, God, I trust you put good in there, that you put that in there because you want good for me, you want good for my kids, you want our family to be a city with walls of protection, with big inviting gates where we can go and interact with the world around us in freedom and in love. God, help us to trust you in that. Help me to trust you in that. Help us not make parenting a list of do's and don'ts and checklists that we're just going to fail at. Help us to build it upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.